0: At the beginning of the 14th century, Latin Christendom faced a whole host of problems, crusading and otherwise. One proposed solution to these problems? Build a navy, a papal navy. I hope you don't kill over, footnoters, because it's a boat to get maritime on this episode of Footnoting History. Ahoy, footnoters! It's Josh, back from hiatus and leading off the year, With a voyage on the high seas with the Papacy. I'm going to Trireme to keep the boat puns at half mast, but I can make no guarantees. When it comes to puns, I go hard to starboard. Okay, seriously, I'm done now. It's time to put these puns to port. Okay, okay, I'm really done now. Now, you may be wondering what the Papacy was doing with the Navy, and that's a perfectly reasonable question to ask. After all, we don't tend to think of maritime warfare when it comes to the crusading project. At least I didn't. And really, instead, we tend to think of sweaty French dudes on horseback, blood flowing like rivers on the streets of Antioch, and that historically bungled but fairly entertaining Ridley Scott film, Kingdom of Heaven. The idea of religious pluralism would have been shocking to both Saladin and Baldwin IV, but I digress, that's a story for another time. When I was researching for my dissertation nearly a decade ago, oh my god, no, I was surprised to learn just how much policing the seas and trade between Latin Christians and their various others, Greeks, non-Christians, etc., became a concern for church leaders, including the Pope himself. Before we get into the, I don't know, tide of it all, Let me do a little world building for you so we have some context as to why the papacy became so interested in having an arm of enforcement out on the sea. And to do this, we need to focus on two contexts, crusading and international trade in the late 13th and early 14th centuries. I know talking about economic history isn't everybody's cup of tea, so I'll try to be as succinct as I can be here. After all, I'm gonna follow US President Lyndon Johnson on this as he once quipped, and I quote, "'Making a speech about economics is a lot like pissing down your own leg. It seems hot to you, but it never does to anyone else." Ew. As anyone who has ever taken an American standardized world history test can tell you, the Crusading Project and trade are intimately connected. Usually this is framed as a sort of cause and effect thing, The Crusades happened, and then international trade, especially in Europe, expanded exponentially. Oh, if only essentializing a topic actually produced anything of real historical value, he says as he boils down an incredibly complex topic into a few sentences and quips. But of course the picture is more complicated than that. Sure, the Crusading Project opened up a few new avenues of trade between Europe and the wider world, but the truth is that a lot of those trading networks had existed for centuries already. If you've never read Facian on the Chinese and Romans meeting on the Silk Road, you owe it to yourselves, dear footnoters, to allow yourself that pleasure. It's great. But more to our point, the crusading project opened up a whole host of new complication for Latin Christians. As crusading went on and the project began to, let's say, fall short of its intended goals, the papacy and Western European leaders began to see a link between trade with the enemies of Latin Christianity and the failures of the various crusades launched in the Mediterranean world. This accelerated in the 13th century especially as what we often call the commercial revolution in Europe put the profit-seeking enterprises of various European merchants and the goals of the church at odds with each other. And here I'm really talking about Italy because Italy kind of struck out on its own. Mostly because the Italian kingdoms, especially Venice, Genoa, and Pisa, Were all worthy maritime powers who naturally put their own interests in front of any demands from the papacy. That's a major oversimplification, and I'm almost sorry that I wrote it. It's not as if the Italian kingdoms and the papacy were constantly diametrically opposed, as the kingdoms often worked with the papacy to achieve the Holy See's goals, and vice versa too. But also, the Fourth Crusade, folks. A lot of the reasons why the Crusaders went to Constantinople had to do with the Venetians. And look how that ended. Yikes. Anyway, if you want to know just how much one Italian kingdom, Sicily, which occupied Naples at the time, and the papacy were at odds with each other, I invite you to go back and listen to my two-part episode on the Sicilian Vespers. I think it's a good one. In any event, running a profitable economic enterprise and obeying the religious mandates of the papacy were often mutually exclusive operations. What got particularly sticky was when Latin Europeans traded in certain goods with certain people, but especially when they traded with Muslims. We'll come back to that in a minute, but let's catch up on the Crusades for just a second. To say that the crusading project after the First Crusade was a failure would be an insult to failures. Now, Third Crusade fan people, Richard the Lionheart didn't accomplish his goals, Freddie Babs fell off his horse and drowned on the way there, and Philip II left because he got his fifis hurt and he couldn't get along with Richie Rich of England. I mean, when have France and Britain ever gotten along? and they played each other in the quarterfinals of the World Cup a few weeks ago. Oh, such drama. I need to stop with these massive oversimplifications. The 13th century only brought catastrophic loss after catastrophic loss for Latin Christendom and the Crusades. Most importantly, the fall of the last crusader city of Acre in 1291. And footnoters, to say that the fall of Acre caused a spiritual crisis in Latin Christendom at least among the spiritual elite, would be an understatement, though the capture of the city didn't really come as much of a shock. More to our point, in the wake of the collapse of this last crusader city, church commentators sought to lay blame. While many pointed the finger at church leadership, the papacy in particular, a handful, particularly a man known as the Templar of Tyre, and another, Fadio of Naples accused quote unquote evil Christians, particularly merchants, who traded war goods like timber, iron, and shipmaking materials with Muslims, something that the church had long outlawed. Both men had some rather unkind words for just about any Latin Christian living in the former Crusader states, really. Both blamed the Crusaders for their lack of zeal and commitment to the cause and especially the Italians whose infighting distracted focus on the real enemy. In the wake of the fall of Acre, moreover, the nature of crusading changed. Rather than focus primarily on the recapture of the holy city of Jerusalem, crusade theorists proposed a new strategy. Smaller actions, called in the Latin, passagium particulare, that preceded a general crusade to Jerusalem called the Passagium Generale. While these smaller actions often included capturing or fortifying territories important to the crusading project, Sicily, Rhodes, and Smyrna come to mind, crusade theorists and the papacy also recognized that the Mediterranean and the Aegean needed preparation themselves. On these seas, Latin Christians identified three key enemies. The Mamluks of Egypt, who had sacked and captured Acre, the Turks, vaguely described, and those evil Christians I mentioned a minute or so ago. As to the Mamluks, the chief concern among crusade theorists was the trafficking of goods between Latin Europe and Egypt. If we think back to Thaddeo of Naples for just a second. He identified that the war-good trade between Europe and Egypt was a principal cause of the collapse of the crusader cities. The crusade theorists, in what historians refer to as the Recuperat de Terra Sancti treatises, elaborate plans for executing a crusade, proposed using an old tool of the church, the embargo, a block on trade to and from Egypt in this case. I don't want to get too into the weeds with the use of embargo here, but if you're interested, Stefan Stanchev, a scholar at Arizona State University, wrote a book called Spiritual Rationality, Papal Embargo as Cultural Practice. That's, that's worth your time. I've put the reference in the episode suggested reading section. But to be brief, the papacy had long used the embargo as a tool in their toolbox. The first use of the embargo dates to at least the Third Lateran Council in 1179. The Fourth Lateran Council in 1215 banned Christians from even communicating with Muslims, but it was especially egregious if they did so in a business context. At the Second Council of Léon in 1274, Christians were even banned from traveling to Muslim lands for six years. Crusading accepted, of course. In other words, illicit trade had become more than just a matter of wartime logistics. Illicit trade was now considered heresy by the church. I hope that one of the first questions that pops into your mind is, well, how in the deep blue sea is the papacy going to enforce that? As an aside, saying deep blue sea... Always reminds me of that terrible but great movie by the same name in which Samuel L. Jackson gets eaten by a shark, and LL Cool J is in it too, as a chef. He has advice about how to cook an egg. He says that adding milk is a mistake. I think that might just be the most Josh moment in a Footnoting History episode so far. Um... These are the consequences of me drinking coffee while I write an episode. Oof. Okay, so how did the papacy enforce all of these rules? I suppose we could say that they very much didn't. Trade between Italian city-states and the Muslim world continued apace. But that's not to say that they didn't try. Now we can finally turn to the papal fleet itself. Okay, I have one more thing before we get there. We need to make a clear distinction. I'm going to talk about both the imaginary and reality here. Let let me explain. A lot of the talk of the papal fleet came from those recuperateone de terrae sancti treatises written by the crusade theorists. We need to remember that what the theorists propose are what that particular writer considered the ideal. What the papacy actually did was an entirely different story, and I'll make sure that I remind us when we move between fantasy and reality. We're also gonna focus on two popes who put plans into motion that actually put boats on the water, John XXII and Clement VI, both popes at Avignon, though a couple of others will get a shout-out too. But let's start with those crusade theorists. There are quite a few theorists worth discussing. William of Adam, Marino Sonudo Torcello, and the anonymous author of the Directorium ad Faciendum Passagium Transmarinarum, translated Instructions for Making an Overseas Crusade. Let's keep ourselves grounded here. Remember that these quote-unquote instructions are the theorists' ideals, not the actual practice. Sanudo and the author of the directorium provided a specific number of ships that they thought were sufficient to police the seas. Sanudo suggested ten, which could eventually be reduced to seven once they had established control over the seas. The author of the directorium proposed twelve galleys. Both suggestions were actually a reduction in numbers when compared to the earlier crusade treatises written by men like Fidenzio of Padua, who suggested 30 ships. On the other hand, William of Adam did not provide any specifics as far as how many ships were needed in total, but he did suggest a number of specific locations where the ships should be stationed. What I find so interesting about these proposed fleets was that the theorists mandated that the boats be staffed by men who were dedicated to the cause of the crusade. No mere sailor would do, they needed true believers. A reminder that trade had become a spiritual matter, and policing that trade, a crusading action. To that point, William of Adam and the other theorists too They were concerned gravely about the slave trade in the Mediterranean and Indian Ocean. What offended these theorists and other Christians was the fact that Christians, whether Latin, Greek, or other, were being sold to Muslim slavers. In the worst case scenario, a Christian man could be sold into slavery in Egypt, become a part of the Mamluk army, rise in the ranks, And eventually become sultan himself and lead the armies of the enemy against Christendom. But interestingly, William of Adam proposed that slavery become a punishment for those who participated in the illicit trade with Muslims. Just a reminder that it wasn't that the church thought that slavery itself was immoral, just that non-Christians enslaving Christians was the work of Satan himself. Well, The theorists proposed one thing, but the papacy did another, and honestly could be reluctant to put any sort of plan involving a fleet into action. King Henry II of Cyprus was the first to make any sort of promises to the papacy in this regard when he promised a fleet of ships to police the actions of the Italian merchants who, nearly everyone suspected, okay, everyone knew, engaged in trade with the Egyptian Mamluks and various other Muslims. Nothing came of this, however, at least as far as I've been able to discover. It was under Pope John XXII, my man, that things got spicy. J22 is my man because he's who I wrote my dissertation on, just to be clear. I may write about him, but I don't like him. He's a real jerk. Anyway, John the papacy was marked by a number of theological controversies, as I think I've mentioned in previous episodes. But, the man was certainly ambitious when it came to crusading plans, even if very few of them ever materialized. He did, however, manage to put a fleet in the water. Despite his initial reluctance to support a fleet due to his animosity towards the Venetians, and the participation of the Greek emperor. I mean, who didn't John have a beef with? John committed to putting 8 ships into a fleet totaling 40 boats. 8 from the papacy, and France too. 6 from the Greeks, 6 from Cyprus, 10 from the Hospitallers, and 10 from the Venetians. Rather than policing the trade of Latin merchants on the seas, this fleet formed for one purpose to combat the growing Turkish threat in the Mediterranean and the Aegean. The fleet launched in 1333 and operated quite successfully until 1334. John died that year, and his successor, Benedict XII, had very little interest in international affairs, choosing instead to focus on more domestic concerns. He used to be an inquisitor, after all the papal use of a fleet revived under Pope Clement VI, who commissioned a smaller fleet for his crusading actions in Smyrna in 1343. Much like the fleet of 1333-1334, Clement VI's fleet achieved some initial successes. The fleet won a few important battles, but ultimately ran into two major issues. The first was that the captains of the papal and Venetian galleys died in battle. And the other? This thing you may have heard about before, but I don't know. Does the Black Death ring any bells? Yeah, yeah, i definitely call that a complication, just to put it as mildly as possible. Also, another war broke out between the Venetians and the Genoese, so things were just going swimmingly. And This isn't to say anything about a growing war between Britain and France, this whole 100 years war thing that we talk about in history. Oh, Europe had some rough times, bro. Some pretty rough times. Okay, dear listeners, usually I don't do this. I tell my students all the time that if you want to know about military technology and battle strategy, I'm not the guy to help you out. It's not that I don't care about such things, it's just that I find literally everything else more interesting. But I do think it's worth mentioning the types of ships that these fleets put to use because they were fairly new at the time. Well, new is a bit of a misnomer here because there's fairly old shipbuilding technology at play but used in a different way. See, this is exactly why I don't do this. Anyway, here's, here's what I understand. At the time, Europeans used two types of ships, generally speaking, the Nawis and the gallia, the galley. Nawis were sail-powered and, again, generally speaking, used for cargo and merchandise. Galleys were ore-powered and, again, generally speaking, used for warfare. The innovation in Venetian shipbuilding Which had a direct effect on these papal fleets was the move from a bireme gallery to a trireme gallery. The big difference here was the number of oarsmen powering the ship. Where a bireme used two oarsmen per bench, a trireme could fit three men per bench without sacrificing speed. And because of the broader hull, the trireme galley could carry more cargo whether military equipment or merchandise in times of peace. That's about the best I can do. If you're really into pre-modern military history or just like history in general, which of course you do, you listen to us. I highly recommend the blog Aku, written by a friend and former colleague of mine, Brett Devereaux. I'll put the link in the episode's further reading because you owe it to yourself to check it out. Brett is one of the smartest people I've ever met, and I was fortunate to get to TA the Ancient Rome Survey with him back at UNC. His writing and thinking is top-notch, really top-tier stuff. In any event, I want to bring us back and think about the purpose of these fleets. What were they really for? Were they singular in purpose? Were they just for combating the Turks? Or did the policing of cross-cultural trade take precedence? Was it a combination of the two? Are there other factors we should consider? Or does the cross-cultural trade policing only exist in the minds of crusade theorists? I think it's somewhat difficult to nail down. After all, these were crusading vessels, and while the Turks were, to go all Tom Clancy on you, a clear and present danger in the eyes of the leaders of Latin Christendom, We also know that crusading became as much about squashing Christian heresy as it did about the conquest of Jerusalem, and as Christian Muslim trade became a heretical practice worthy of excommunication and anathematization, it's hard not to think about these galleys and link them to the policing of that trade. At the same time, though, the papacy issued trading licenses to Italian merchants to trade with the Turks and the Mamluks and the quote-unquote other enemies of Christendom, so it's, it's pretty murky water. Ugh, uh, I, I promise no more sea puns. Sorry. At some point, I'll have to revisit my dissertation, retrace my footsteps, and see if the papacy's practice more closely resembled the ideas of the crusade theorists. But I'll have to wait on that for a bit. I've got other islands to explore in the meantime. So someone cue the lonely island because we've been on a boat in this episode of Footnoting History. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Footnoting History. Don't forget to head over to footnotinghistory.com for visuals, links, and sources related to the Papal Fleet. Don't forget that all of our episodes are now on YouTube, complete with closed captions. Please go visit our channel, like our videos, and subscribe if you love it. If you'd like to interact with us, we're on Twitter as at HistoryFootnote or Facebook, Instagram, and Pinterest as at Footnoting History. We'd love to hear from you, and remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes.